Welcome to the Poetry P podcast. This time I'm very happy to be joined by Shane Pruitt, Poetry P's Highborn editor, and Sean O'Connor, the founding editor of the Highborn Journal. Now, if you're listening to this in real time, that's January 2023, I hope this podcast inspires you to write some fantastic Highborn for our submission period, which finishes on the 31st of January. But if you're coming along a little later, or much later, well, you know what? Write some Highborn and check out our submission dates and Sean's submission dates, and hopefully you'll find one of us will have a reading period. Now, a little housekeeping before we have a listen to Sean and Shane. Next time on the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Bruce H. Feingold for a reading from his book, Everything with an Asterisk. And I'll be joined by one of my family. Listen to us and find out why. Also, I'd like to thank you for all the coffees you've bought the podcast. I can't do everything I do without this help. And the exciting news is that I'm halfway to being able to afford some some help, an intern. Thank you very much. And this time I'd like to thank Jason Furtak, Wendy Blomseth, Linda Ludwig, Jenny Shepherd, Eve Castle, Jerome Berglund, Colette Kern, Kimberly Kucher, Stina Hernandez, Debbie Orson, Giddy Nielsen Sweep, Joseph Wexelberger, Daya Butt, Tony Williams, Susan Andrews, David Cox and Michael Winter for their very generous donations to the podcast. And of course, there were some of you who chose to remain anonymous. So thank you too. You know who you are. All contributions you make to us are very much valued. Thank you so much. And of course, to everyone who bought Journal 2 last year. Wow. Thank you. I'm proofreading the third one now, and I hope it won't be too long before I'm sending out a mailing to let you know you can get hold of it. So if you're not on my mailing list, can I just remind you, it's very easy to do, sign up on the website. And that reminds me, I'm doing two journals this year, and I'm definitely going to offer it as a PDF like I've done with the journals for 2022. But I'm thinking of doing a print version too, just so you can have a choice. What do you think? Email me, let me know. So enough of me. Let's go and have a listen to what Shane and Sean have to say. But do listen to the end because I'll be letting you know what I found important and what might increase your chances of your submission being chosen by Poetry P. Now, if you've listened to Series 5, Episode 19, one where Sean O'Connor joins us to talk Highburn, I'm guessing you've been looking forward to this bonus episode, the one where Shane Pruitt and I get to ask Sean questions. As many of you know, Shane is the Highburn editor here at Poetry P and a real enthusiast of the genre. So, Shane, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to have you back. And of course, Sean is here to take our questions. Hello, Sean. Delighted to be back. Hello, Shane, and hello, Patricia. <laughs> so let me just remind you that Sean is the founding editor of the Highburn Journal, and there will be links, of course, to that journal and his website in the show notes. And you can find out lots about Sean on his website and buy his books too. The latest, Fragmentation, was a winner of the HSA Merit Book Award for Best Highburn Book, and he'll be reading some work from it on our Poetry P Readings podcast next year. 
So now I'm going to start off by inviting Shane to give you the first question, Sean. Over to you, Shane. Thank you, Patricia. Really appreciate it. Sean, uh, really great to have you here. One of the things that you, you spoke of that really uh, stuck with me was the contextualization that this, the sentences that we add were originally intended to, to contextualize or to place, place a frame around the haiku that are being presented. And you, you demonstrated that with often just on the death of a child, or, I mean, it was a very short piece of, of prose. Today, we write haiboon that are much more expansive. And so I'm wondering, uh, when you're looking at this as an editor or as a writer, how much prose, how do you, how do you kind of decide how much context, how much story to tell? It's very difficult to answer that uh, in general um, because as a writer myself, I start off with, with haiku, but sometimes I might just write a few words between two haiku. And occasionally I might write a page and a half, it'd be 500 words. So I don't think there's any rule of thumb that I can give, except that if you're turning pages of prose and there's no haiku for quite a while, you might begin to wonder if you're still reading a high one. And people have done that, you know, there's their so-called high one novels and all of that. And it's, there's a haiku every, every once in a while. And, you know, if you lose your way along the road, if you begin to no longer recognize the journey as a high one, then there's definitely time. It's definitely gone too far. The principle I have, though, is that the haiku are primary and that they are driving the emotional narrative in particular. That's not to say there's no emotional narrative in the prose. There is. But that the, that the real kick comes when you get to that haiku. So just in the same way, I would expand this slightly and say, there's this idea of what I call one and ones, which is prose followed by a haiku. We see this all the time. And I write a lot of these and I'm, I'm happy with them. And people sometimes forget that the haiku might be first and there might be no other haiku, be a haiku followed by prose. And it's a similar point. I mean, what, how is this structured is what you're really asking. So in that structure, sometimes we could write a sequence of haiku in a row in the middle of the prose. It could be prose followed by eight haiku in a row which we see a lot in Japan. And you, you see it a lot in Narrow Road to the Deep North in particular. There's often a dozen haiku in a row. So this notion of the structure is really what you're asking me. In the end, uh, if the reader has forgotten that they're reading a haibun because there hasn't been a haiku for a long time, you could pretty, be pretty sure it's too far. On the other hand, there, there may be eight haiku in a row. And people forget that possibility. Or it may be a long piece of prose that's 500 words for sticker, it's kind of a page and a half on, on, a, on a journal, followed by a sequence. And again, I'm encouraging writers to think more broadly about the structure of the piece. To the basic point is the haiku drive everything and the haiku are the point of the whole thing. And we lose sight of that. We're, 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 we're just writing prose and we're adding haiku in it. I don't know what to say, a slightly ad hoc way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I give a lot of high, high workshops and the people who attend my workshops are always very surprised by this. 
to hear this. They also I write prose and then I put a haiku and I might write some more prose. I said, that's great. And if you can do it, that's great. It's just I've never done it and I don't know any Japanese have ever done it like that. Maybe they have. I just want to follow that up with with a question we had uh, from one of the community or, or, or a point they made. Where does the haiku come in the sequence of things? And I think from what you're saying is that there is no rule. It can be at the beginning, it can be in the middle, it could be at the end. And like you said, there can be a whole sequence. Be a bit sort of free thinking in the way that you put it together, would you say? I think the answer to this lies in the approach, because if you're approaching it, I'm going to tell a story and I'm going to tell it as a high one. Mm -hmm. Then you know you're required to have prose and at least one haiku. You know that. So if you start off with, I know what the story is. It's about the old lady who murdered the bishop and uh, on a cold winter's morning. And so you start writing your prose. The old lady, it was a cold winter's morning and the bishop was coming along the street and so on. And then you put in your haiku and then you're finished. Well, fair enough. But what I'm advocating is a different approach. You contemplate the story and start to write haiku about that if you like now you've got your haiku and there might be quite a few of them so then you think well does one do one of these haiku act as a very good scene setter should i put one of those haiku first because actually i see one here now and if i open up at that that sets up the cold frosty morning in the winter and and a sense of jeopardy there's going to be a murder so we can't have any old the snow is falling outside and that's it oh no we need jeopardy in here. And you happen to look at the, you know, and that might naturally evolve when you're contemplating such a thing. So then you look, you put your jeopardy in the beginning and then you start to expand on that. And the bishop was coming along and, uh, and the cold knife was flashing in the air and all that. You're writing your prose. And you think, ah, oh, here's another, here's a haiku now. And you, you're really always looking at your haiku. I've got my page of haiku handwritten beside me as I'm writing. I'm constantly looking over at them and thinking, am I heading towards one of these? And in the end, if I have, for sake of argument, eight haiku, I may only use two or I may use all eight and I may write some more and I may rewrite them and I reorganize them as the prose develops. There's this interaction going on. But you can see what I'm saying, that the haiku are the starting point of the whole thing and the focus of it. So I know exactly where I'm going haiku wise all the time. So you, I don't think about the prose until I'm, I've got all that set up. It's a very different technique and that's how the that's how the origin that's how it began one of our community john wanted to say that he was worried about his prose because he felt that that was the weaker element of the high boom that he was writing and from what you're saying what i'm getting and you may come back and tell me i'm wrong but what i'm what i'm getting from that is perhaps john should really rethink the way he's doing it make sure his haiku are stars the haiku are the primary aspect of highbun writing. Otherwise, it's not highbun writing. It's flash fiction writing mm. with some little poem at the end. Good news about prose writing is it's dead easy to beef it up and to learn how to write prose. There's a, a million workshops online about prose writing. And prose is prose. See, some people think, oh, the prose in a highbun has to be poetic. Or it has to be this or it has to be that. I don't buy that at all. I think the prose, the style of prose is determined by whatever it is you're trying to express. So, I mean, if you think about it, writers like one of my, one of my favorite writers is John Steinbeck. 
And he doesn't write poetic prose, nor does Hemingway, but mm-hmm. and Orwell. Uh, but mm-hmm. my God, can they write? And and they were pioneers of simplicity at the time. I and mean, they were very conscious of what they were doing. And they wrote about the way they write and all. Well, Steinbeck less so. Steinbeck was a journalist, actually, as well. And so was Hemingway, actually. No, I think yeah. And so was. Oh, yeah. OK. They all, I didn't <laughs> realise that. But the point is that the, the prose needs work. And it's hard. To, it's difficult to write good prose at the best of times, which is why I should say that in, I forgot to mention this earlier, but look at this. My opening editor's preface in the very first issue of the Highland Journal says the following in paragraph two, to compose worthwhile haiku can be surprisingly difficult. Adding to that task, the writing of prose poetry in combination with haiku is a big ask. And that's why I think the Highland form is one of the most difficult forms to get into. On the planet, I can't think of a more more difficult way of writing. If you concentrate it just on being an excellent prose writer, that's hard enough. And if you concentrate on trying to be a brilliant haiku poet, that's a big task to be really good at it, to be recognized and be citable. And to be so citable, which is the target here, that members of the public will be able to cite your work off the top of their head in the same way as they do other poets. Mm. You know, everybody... Can, I wonder lonely as the cloud. And to write citable haiku that are award-winning and recognized and get the Nobel Prize, there's your task. And then to do the same with prose is very difficult. To do the two together in one form is, let's face it, a very tall order. So I don't think people should balk at the fact that it's difficult. We know it's difficult. <laughs> so I try to help you get out of the difficulty by saying, You've got two tasks here, but your primary one is still the haiku Mm -hmm. and getting that emotional resonance of the story. So it is literature and it's not journalism, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. There's your there's your big task. And it's a great task. And when it works, it's superb. When when you hear somebody read a high one that's really laden with emotion and dread or whatever's going on or beauty or whatever. And you're passionate about it when you like the way some people speak about a lot of the mainstream writers i heard you speaking about claire keegan from ireland earlier and you were so animated but we need we need people to read high one and be animated by them and we need to we need to we need them to hear a high one read aloud and be engrossed and captivated and that's the task of all writing it's no more it's no more difficult than writing good short stories in a way but it's got that added added dimension that you're trying to write poetry as well when we read for, for our journal, quite often Shane will write me a note and said, this one's just not engaging me. Isn't that right, Shane? We're looking to be engaged at the very start, whether it's haiku or, or prose. Yeah, I want something that draws me in to the story. I, I want to feel, you know, uh, Sean, you mentioned this uh, earlier. I want, there's, I want some emotion. I want a connection to it. And, and you're, you know, the haiku really is the cornerstone of that. And then I think of the prose as just rounding out the story, taking me down maybe a different path than what I expected from the haiku, but coming back, uh, you know, kind of as a whole package. I I really, I, I look for that when we get our, when we get our submissions. That sort of brings me on to another thing that I'd like to clarify. You spoke in the workshop about 
the Sean, the prose and the haiku having different rhythms. Is that also what we're looking for? We should see a change in rhythm between the two pieces. Yeah, you see, a, well, a well-written haiku has a very clear rhythm. And therefore, you can't, if it's well-written, when it's read aloud, you cannot avoid the fact that something has happened here. Because mm-hmm. that is a different rhythm to prose. It's just that it is a break in the rhythm. Mm-hmm. More to the point, it's almost like we've arrived at rhythm now. Because prose does not demand a strict rhythm. You can alter the rhythm. It's natural to alter the rhythm, even the way I'm speaking now. I am altering my rhythm. Sometimes I might pause and other times I might hesitate. Then I might speak really quickly because I get very animated all of a sudden. And, and that's how we write prose. But when I'm reading a poem, it's I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or hills and dales. And all at once I saw a crowd and it's very, very clear that there's a and it, rhythm engages us. Now, I'm a former professional dancer and I'm always a long, a long time professional musician. And we drive everything with the rhythm. We depend on the rhythm to drive it. We get confused about that even slightly. If anybody starts going off signature with the rhythm, the whole thing falls down. But you, you can hear the clarity in music and dance, the clarity of rhythm. But in poetry, poetry is driven and defined by rhythm all the way. It always, it always has been. It's that rhythm is, is mesmerizing in the story. And when, you, when you're hearing haiku or haibun read, you should know, even if you're listening on a radio and you can't see it on the page, you should know that there's a haiku now. I'll, I'll make a wisecrack about that. That's the haiku moment. <laughs> you should hear it. And then if it switches again to prose, you should hear that now, now it's prose again. That clarity is what we're driving for. And it makes a big difference when you read it to a live audience, as I regularly do in Ireland. We're a very uh, oral tradition in Ireland. We want to mm. hear the work. You can you know, sense the audience getting up on the edge of their seat when, you, when the haiku comes in. And there's this, I, I read on radio recently, even over the radio, people were saying, <gasps> those haiku. And how do they know? How do they know? People say, well, a second haiku in that piece. Well, how did they know? Because I don't go, uh, I'm now going to read a haiku bit. I'm just reading. I'm just telling the story. And it's like Isa. And then the scabs fell off and we began to feel encouraged. And then we started praying to the God and they know. But unfortunately, and it's all going on. It's just prose for this world of Jew. Is just a world of Jew. And yet, and yet, that's a haiku. <laughs> Something has changed and you're you're drawn to it. And you can hear the sudden change in tone, rhythm, and it's emotionally laden. And it all starts to come together. And in that case, I don't think Isa could have written anything after it. That's mm. now the end. That goes back to your question, Shane. It, that stopped the prose. That that particular haiku, in that case, put an end to that. That that wasn't mm-hmm. going any further. Absolutely, I agree that that is a that example. Really, the story's done. There's nothing else you can say. That was actually very powerful. If people haven't heard you read it on the original workshop, they should go back and, and listen to that. That was. Very moving indeed. I want to talk about the haiku again. I'm sorry, but as you said, it's the primary driver here. 
I don't know whether we, we talked about it in great depth or you talked about it in great depth on the workshop, but the role of the Kigo in the haiku, how do, how do you feel about that? Long before I went to Japan, uh, back in the 90s, I was the editor of the, a print journal based in Ireland called Haiku Spirit. Okay. And uh, I did eight, eight issues uh, from 1998 to 2000. It was founded by Jim Norton in 95. We did 20 issues over five years. And uh, that was in t- the year 2000. It was 2008 when I went, moved to Japan. So I had eight more years of being very engrossed in haiku writing and all that. And I really did think there was very little I didn't know about haiku. Because I've been already 20 years writing and I've been the editor of this journal. And you know what I mean? I was full sure I knew. So then I arrive in Japan and I start studying Japanese. I'm living in a village where no one speaks a word of English. And I start interacting with the haiku scene there. And out of nowhere, uh, I, I start to notice everybody goes, well, of course there's Kigo. Of course, you, you can't not have a Kigo. It's not, no Kigo, it's not a haiku. And I go, now, hang on a minute. Now, we've been writing haiku for years, not really worrying about this Kigo business. And they're going, oh, well, that, they're not haiku. That's Tanchi, that is. They're just short poems. But the, the, the clarity with which the Japanese have is, no, a Kigo is an essential requirement without which it's just not a haiku. It, it might be brilliant, and it could be stunning, and it could be the best three-line haiku or the two line or tree line or one line poem in the world but it's just not a haiku it's just non-negotiable it's not an opinion we don't discuss it nothing to say here nothing to see so i've gone all right okay hang on a minute i i i, I was been publishing all this stuff for years with no kigo and i didn't care about that as i was working with the japanese over a long period of time in japanese in particular i began to realize that this business of kigo is something really important here and I, I listen to their struggles with it. And I listen to attending a lot of workshops all the time. I mean, it's prolific in Japan. Eight million active writers of haiku in Japan. And the penny dropped with me when, well, they told me it's about the emotions. It's about the emotions. What is the emotional driver of this piece? What are you trying to direct the reader to feel? And that's where the key go comes in it's a tool for developing emotional resonance with the reader so you know the way when people say well i don't like to be restricted in my work because uh, if i don't want to use a kigo i won't or if i don't want to use three lines i'll use four i'll use two i'll use one and all this in the name of self-expression this is said this is what amuses me what i realized was that people who don't buy the idea of a form in the name of self-expression and I'm going to make a big statement here, in general, are not as very effective of expressing themselves. Because I, I read it and I'm going, what am I supposed to conclude here? What, I, what am I supposed to feel when I read it? It's clever. It's good. It's interesting. But I'm there going, where's the poetry in this? Whereas when you deliberately sit down in a room doing a workshop on haiku and they're all saying, yeah, but what emotion are you directing the reader to feel? Now, notice the language. You're directing the reader. You are deciding that this is going to be painful. You're deciding that this is about loss. You're going to make them laugh or you're going to make them cry, but you're going to make them do something or that's your attempt. So the intentionality of the emotional quality in haiku is very clear when you listen to the Japanese try and construct their kigo. 
they are openly saying, no, it's look, it's not it's not sad enough. It's sad. Well, that's an interesting key. It's sad. But no, this is about the death of the child. We need to crank it up here. Or no, it's really about the gorgeousness of, of this situation that we're talking about. So it's actually slightly too sad. I need this to be uplifting. How are we going to make it uplifting? And we think, of what Kigo are we choosing in that sense? So this is really self-expression in the sense that the writer is owning what's going to happen here. The irony is writers don't express themselves. They express the world. Because if you put too much of your actual self into your writing, the reader gets switched off. The reader doesn't identify with that. The reader doesn't care about the writer. Sorry to say it. I'm a writer. I don't think for one second that any reader in the world reading my work is going to wonder about what kind of life I'm having or whether I'm doing okay. Nobody ever writes up and say, I was just wondering, uh, how are you getting on since your father died since uh, you wrote all that stuff about it? <laughs> no, nobody does. Why would they? Because it's not about me. It's not about my father. It's about father's parents it's about loss of people it's about where we are in the world i have no doubt about that so i just give you one last example of this because i'm sorry for going this is kigo you're asking me but i want to yeah. just say this when i was a teenager i was mad about dostoevsky i read everything that this russian novelist wrote and i was passionate about dostoevsky now that's a long time ago so now let me tell you the sum total of my knowledge about dostoevsky he wrote books that i read i know the names of the books I've read them. He was Russian. I think he had a beard. I think he lived in the 1800s, but I'm not entirely sure. That's it. It's mm -hmm. all I know about Dostoevsky. And do I care? No. Well, I think he's dead as well. <laughs> uh, so, like, you know, some people do go in and they're fascinated by their writer, but the writer is not important. But the key go are important because they allow the writer to find these, these nuggets, this device that injects an emotional resonance very deliberately. So if you want the jeopardy, you're going to have to have the ice about to break. If you go back to the story about the woman is going to kill the bishop and it's a cold winter's night, you're not going to put fresh snow on the ground there. There's no, there's no jeopardy in fresh snow. Fresh snow is a kind of gorgeous situation. No, you need ice about to crack. Mm -hmm. You need something that's going to hurt. There's a murder about to take place. So you're setting the tone. And that's what I think people forget, the role of Kigo. The beautiful thing about it is you can take any time of the year, any moment, even when you're indoors. And if you tune into the world of what's happening around you in, in nature, you can create any emotional resonance from any situation. And don't take my word for it. Read prose writers who do it, like Hiromi Kawakami, who wrote this incredible book in English. It's Japanese, but she's not a haiku writer, as far as I know. But she wrote a book called Strange Weather in Tokyo. She has this novel about two people, a man and a woman, who live in the biggest metropolis in the world, Tokyo, 34 million people, and they're writing them bang in the middle of it. The whole story, they make a couple of trips outside town into nature briefly, but almost the entire story is just two individuals and they're either in apartments in a big built up city or they're in bars. And yet all the emotional narrative is driven by her references as a writer to the change in season, 
there's a sudden chill in the air. All those clues, even when they're in the bar, the food they're having, ah, it's the time of year when we can get this type of fish. The whole point of it is these the two characters don't connect very well directly emotionally. So nothing is said by the characters that give you a clue about what they're feeling. When you get to the end of that book, I guarantee you, I defy you to read the end of that book and not cry. That's Kigo. It's it's Kigo. She, she, she generates it all by Kigo. When you get to the end, you are just saturated with emotion and you think, where did this emotion come from? And Claire Keegan does it too. Oh, yeah. She does well, it in abundance. I'll put the I'll put these books in the in the, the show notes. But I think Shane, did you have a, f- a follow up question for Sean on, on that one? I did. Actually, as we're talking about Kigo, how do you feel about in the context of a single high boon shifting seasons? And I mean, number one, is that something that is a, a useful device? And number two, does this does the shift only need to occur? in the haiku as a as a traditional kigo or or as you're kind of suggesting here can that be really the interplay between the prose and and the haiku i never fully understand what people mean by the interplay between prose and haiku people mean different things by that mm-hmm. uh, and I, I i never talk about that right you'll notice i've never said anything, the interplay between the prose and the haiku because the high one is a complete thing it's almost like using different techniques in the right in the prose writing as you go. Uh, the haiku is another f- aspect of the form we're using, so I don't see that clean separation between the two, and I'm not that convinced about conversations between the relationship between the two as if they're somehow separate, because it's one unit that we're talking about. So, change of seasons. Now, this is a very interesting question. I enjoy this. This is a great challenge in high one when you know you want to change the season, when you've got a haiku that's in spring and the next one is in autumn. So you just take account of that because um, you don't need to, from an emotional point of view, you can stay in any season or any even day of the year and keep generating different emotional resonances. As I said, the snow outside the window can be done as a beautiful thing, uplifting, or it can be done as a very sorrowful thing because someone has died, that kind of thing. But in cases, because I had this in a workshop this week, somebody said, oh, yes, but if I've just got these spring ones and then all of a sudden I have an autumn one. I said, well, that's very simple. You just put in a, a line between those two. It's all about skill and it's all about figuring out these problems and these challenges in the writing. Um, it can be done. You can overcome these things if you give it a little bit of thought and guide the reader. Don't shock the reader by suddenly jolting the brakes on and turning the seasons. Don't have it snow in the middle of summer. You know, it's not going to work. Uh, and the season, the readers pick up all of these details. So uh, you do, you can say though, which reminds me of last winter. I mean, I'm being blunt, but uh, a little bit unskilled there. Mm-hmm. But you can go back and forth because stories do go back and forth. The stories change. They don't. We don't. High one, the high one farm is not stuck on a particular day, but it's helpful if it stays in the day, but it's not stuck there. And one last thing I'll mention that always strikes me about a comment that a very leading Japanese uh, haiku expert, I suppose you could call him, said, which struck me very much. He said, Westerners always talk about haiku as being something in the moment, which is true. And he says, but for, for us Japanese, and by the way, for us Irish too, the past is in the present. 
That's a very common statement we have in Ireland. We're still living in the famine. We still remember the famine and it was 100 years before I was born. Mm-hmm. But we have historical memory. Yeah. And our past is in our present all the time. And the Japanese are very strong on that idea. In any moment of life, the whole of the past exists. So you don't look at a field of beautiful barley without something having, having planted it in the first place. So we already have an allusion to the past and you know, straight away in everything we look at, even when we look at the stars we're looking in the past anyway, in Zen, we're in the moment, but the moment is, is not a moment because we're in the future and the past together. And eventually we can get a sense that there is no time. So true moments, the true moments are beyond time. And even on a simpler level, every moment, the present is always got the past contained in it. We would not be talking today if in the past, uh, Patricia didn't contact me. Simple as. How do you deal with people, the do's and don'ts about writing about people in a high one? Do you mean like relatives, friends, close people, real people? Is that the I think, yeah, real. Tra- yeah. Let's look at, sort of, you know, I suppose it's the, the question about how do you deal with, with when you're writing about something that's very close to you as well? People do it and they seem to get away with it. And I don't know how. Now, I do notice in the end that they say, like, I remember one reading about some very horrendous stuff about the circumstances of their father. But they did say, my father read this book. And these are ethical questions, but I'll tell you what I do. Mm-hmm. I'm, I go back to the point I made earlier. No one cares about the writer. I don't want to necessarily know about your actual wife, husband, partner, friend, brother, sister, your actual one. I'm, I'm sorry, but get your ego out of it. It's not about you. It's about the world. So try and provide us with something that we can relate to. Let's say you're talking about father and you've never had a father. You were born with no, you know, you didn't know who your father was. Lots of people have that. And uh, so people that don't never had a father can still read it with a plum. I've never had a child, but I'm very moved by Issa's account of the death of his seven-year-old girl. He's not going on about his own stuff there. You know, he's, he's talking about the reality of what he went through. Mm-hmm. And you notice he's cared about he, he's, how he talks about his wife's reaction and them together. And the pain of the reality of that situation comes across beautifully because it's unegotistical. And I think egotistical writers like to tell us all about what they had for their breakfast and the bloodstains of the bathroom. And uh, just personally, I think, avoid all of that and stick to the general thing. Now, I have a joke going at the moment that I have clearly written fragmentation about my experiences with my father. But here's the twist. The twist is I defy, I would get, if the CIA themselves put all their resources into trying to find out, based on what they read in the book, who my father is, they'll be hard pushed. Because every detail about my father has been changed. And I dedicated the book to him, and I said, dedicated to my dad. So you don't know his name. Mm. The mountains outside the window were changed for similar mountains in another area. My family, who do who know him, obviously, you know, his, his own family were laughing at me saying, what do you mean <laughs> putting that river there? Said, that river's 100 miles away. <laughs> yeah, but it's a similar river, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. so 
where he lives exactly, what he exactly did. And then what I did on top of that was I took stories of other people I'd worked with with dementia and integrated them and referred to them as my father. Yeah. So at no point can you get my actual father. But what's really strange is when I read the review in, uh, I think it was Frog Ponder, somebody recently wrote a little review about when it won the award. I was very struck when the writer said the word, said the words that you can sense the writer's comradeship or camaraderie with their father. Mm -hmm. I was really moved by that because I didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize the camaraderie that we had. Yeah. Until a long time after the book was published, I read this last week and I was quite startled by this. So this brings us to another question. Ironically, when we approach it without, you know, dare I say unegotistically, but not wanting to tell our actual story, but tell the story. Mm. It's, there's a difference. Yeah. Uh, John Updike once said that being a writer is like being stopped in customs and, and they open your bag and you look in and you go, I don't remember putting that in there. <laughs> and you do, you do surreptitiously include things that you're not even aware of. So I was not aware that I had a great comradeship with my father mm-hmm. until a year after the book was published and someone in America that I don't know, I don't think I know them anyway, said it. And then yeah. I looked and I went, oh, yeah. So in other words, not only is it not about the writer, but the writer themselves has a lot to learn from their own writing. Mm. We write things without realizing it. The story takes over. And the characters, whoever they are, they tell you what they will and won't do. And they refuse to take part in activities they're not comfortable with. I see this as a writer all the time. So in terms of people, I would tread really carefully about anything that identifies. So, for example, if I write about my sister in great detail, I've got a shock for you. I've never had a sister. But if I if I did have a sister and I actually wrote about my actual sister and said that's my sister and wrote the truth about my sister, that would be I find that um, unnecessary. Yeah. But you can talk about having a sibling who's female and you can talk about having a sibling who's male, but you should always never forget. It's not about your actual story. It's about the underlying story that the whole world relates to or that everybody can relate to, regardless of whether they've fished in Alaska or not, but they can get fishing in Alaska. It's not about your fishing in Alaska. I don't know if it's a very complicated way of giving an answer to that, but I hope it helps. This has been a brilliant discussion. I've learned a lot in a a short amount of time, and I really appreciate uh, your your answers and and your thoughts on all of this, Sean. Thank you, Mm -hmm. Sean. It's been a pleasure again talking to you and getting our questions answered. And I'll just leave the final words up to you. Sure. Well, I've got to say that I've really enjoyed this because you guys are just got so much energy for this subject. Mm-hmm. And you're, and I can tell as well in, in working with you both in both of these occasions that you have a real energy for writing in general and literature and art. Mm-hmm. And there's no, no better way to spend some time than with some people who have got who share a passion. And uh, I'm really pleased that you we connected and we came here. And I'm very grateful to anybody watching or listening to this, who shares that passion as well. We have to have great gratitude for that sharing of passion. And it is about a passion. So enjoy every minute of the reading haiku and writing them. And 
and think positively about it. This is about enjoyment. Tanoshi, the Japanese say, it's fun and it's challenging and it's great and it's exhilarating and the outcome can be marvelous. So let's focus on all of that, not just the difficulties of it. It's great. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both very much indeed. Well, now, wasn't that a treat? I hope you thought so too. Sean and Shane will certainly be back. Sean, I know, is going to do a reading from his book, Fragmentation, and I really hope I can persuade him to read a smidgen from his newest work, The God of Bones. It's another must read if you want to push yourself to write better highborn. Both the books are available through Alba Publishing and I believe Sean's website, but I'll put the details in the show notes, don't worry. So what did I bring away from this? Well, there was an awful lot, but things that really stuck with me would be grab our attention from the get-go, whether you choose to start your piece of work with a haiku or with prose. Just make sure it, it grabs our attention. And if you haven't tried writing the haiku first, give it a go. See how that works. Let us know which do you prefer, writing your prose or writing the haiku first. And something that's really stuck with me is the idea of putting too much of myself in the piece. As Sean said, it's not about you or me. It's about the underlying story that the world can relate to. And perhaps what I'd also say would what struck me is the importance of Kigo to your work. But actually, if you've been listening to me at all, you know how important I think Kigo is for all the reasons that Sean said. So those are the things I thought were important. If I've missed something, email me, let me know. It's always good to know what you're thinking. Helps me to give you better podcasts. And just as an aside, I'm actually reading Strange Weather in Tokyo at the moment. Haven't got to the end, so I don't know if I'm going to be in tears yet. But I am enjoying it, and I'm definitely connecting with the characters. And the book I read by Claire Keegan was Small Things Like These, which, as Sean said, I'm absolutely passionate about. I loved it so much. Sean also worked on a film of her book. The book was called Foster. I think the film's called The Quiet Girl, but details will be in the show notes. And I believe Sean got a credit on the film. My, my, we are working with celebrities these days, aren't we? So thank you for joining us today. It's really wonderful to have your company and not to be just talking into the void. As Sean said, this is about enjoyment. So until we meet again, keep writing. And if I've left anything out of the podcast notes, do let me know and I'll sort it out for you. Ciao.